If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. When did we first connect the colour yellow with the sun? Why do many cultures wear black in times of mourning? And how did red come to be the colour of political revolution? Rhiannon Davis asks James Fox these questions and more as they delve into the fascinating history of humanity's complex relationship with colour. How can we use colours to tell the history of humanity? Well, I think it's a really good way of telling the history of humanity because uh, humans have always been intimately connected to colours, both because they surround us and we observe them and we see them and we have emotional reactions to them, but also because we have been making them and using them for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. So I think it's a really useful way to interrogate our cultural history, as well as our uh, psychological state, as well as our emotional history as well. And thinking about the colour black first, why do so many creation myths begin with black? Yes, it's a fascinating phenomenon that when you look at creation myths from all over the world... Uh, they, uh, one of the things that so many of them do is uh, begin the universe in a kind of darkness and a, in a deep, deep darkness. This happens all over the world. It's not just in Genesis. Obviously, Genesis is the most famous example where they discuss a darkness on the face of the deep. Um, and uh, so I think it's because essentially when you are trying to create a story of something coming out of nothing... What's a good metaphor for nothing? Well, a great metaphor for nothing is darkness. Um, uh, Darkness is empty or seems empty. It seems invisible. Uh, It seems scary. It's something that we return to every day, you know, after a day of the sun, or or not the sun if we live in this country, uh, you end up with a deep, dark night and then you wait for the, the, the day to start again. So it becomes a great metaphor, not only for nothingness, but also for the beginning of things, uh, because when the sun rises, you get a new day. But the other fascinating thing about it is though these ancient creation myths all spoke of darkness as being this uh, this primordial state, we know from modern astrophysics uh, and cosmology that probably that was actually the case. Because while a lot of people think of the Big Bang as a flash of light, 
it wasn't actually a flash of light because it took, I think, 380,000 years for the first light to permeate our universe because in the very, very early stages, the universe was too dense and too hot for photons of light to escape. So probably, in reality, scientifically speaking, the origins of our universe were incredibly dark. And continuing to think about black, why do many cultures equate black with deprivation? I think it's for the same reason that I was outlining before, that we think of black as a kind of absence. Uh, that's that's one of the things, actually, that is such a common feature of the way we discuss black, uh, black. In fact, you know, a lot of people say have said to me when I when I was talking about writing this book and I said, oh, our chapter one's about black, they say, well, black isn't a colour. Black is the absence of colour. Black is the absence of light. And I think it's the absence of light idea that is perhaps the most potent one, that, that we, we think of black as uh, a failure of something, a failure of something to happen, where in actual fact, um, black is not an absence of light. Black is produced by light. Black is a contrast effect. You need bright light in order to create uh, something looking black. And of course, if black were the absence of light, we wouldn't be able to see it, and we can see it. And today, black is so connected to mourning. It's the colour of grief. It's the colour you wear to funerals. When did that connection begin? Well, there's a very old connection between black and mourning. We know that even in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, there were very strict rules about what kind of colours could be worn. And uh, typically black or very dark colours were associated with uh, death. We still do that. We still today, if we go to a funeral, at least in the West, because in the East, white is the colour of mourning. Uh, but if you go to a funeral in the West, you are expected to wear dark and preferably black colours. And yet, black, like all colours, has very complex uh, connotations and meanings. So for instance, black is also a very fashionable colour. It's also a colour you might wear to a cocktail party in your little black dress or your black tie for a black tie dinner. So black has these complex connotations. They're not solely about death and mourning. Mm, and I wanted to find out more about that because obviously not every culture associates black with mourning, deprivation, the negatives that we've just been discussing. And in particular, I wanted to hear about the ancient Egyptians and their attitudes towards black. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Well, I, as, I, as I said before, I think it's not just about black. It's all kinds of colours have very different meanings in different parts of the world because they emerge from different cultures. Uh, so in ancient Egypt, for instance, black had many positive associations. And that was primarily because when people thought of black, they didn't think necessarily of darkness. They were thinking of black soil, this fertile black soil that existed on the banks of the, the River Nile. And that was the soil that enabled them to create their crops, uh, which enabled their civilization to flourish and people to live and thrive. And so black became this color that was associated in some ways with rebirth, with life, with fertility, um, which might seem quite weird to us today, but that's how it was for them. For them, in fact, for the ancient Egyptians, the really diabolical colour, the real colour you wanted to avoid, the colour of death, was red, because that was the colour of the hot, arid desert that surrounded these fertile black fields. And red is actually the next colour that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and in your book, you say the big connection with red is is blood. Can you tell us a bit more about that link? Yes. I mean, you know, despite our um, uh, preoccupation with the surface skin colour of human beings, beneath the surface, 
all of us are made from red meat and red blood. Um, not all animals have red blood, but we do. Uh, and that is made red from haemoglobin, from a particular molecule in, in our blood that, that, makes, that makes our blood not just one tone of red, but two tones of red. So generally, oxygenated blood is a much brighter scarlet red and deoxygenated blood is more like burgundy. But that, I think, has proved a really important means by which we understand ourselves in some ways as a red species. And that goes back all the way. You go back to creation myths again. I know we were discussing them with regard to blackness. But lots of creation myths all over the world discuss humans very explicitly being made from red pigments, from red clay or red soil or red sand. The redness was very often specified. And you think even the word Adam, the name Adam for the first human being in Genesis, that means in Hebrew, blood or red or soil. So I think from the very beginning, we identified ourselves with that colour. You look at the cave paintings, for instance, and you very often see red handprints, red palm prints, red hand stencils, the red ochre pigment, which is one of the oldest pigments that humans ever used from hundreds of thousands of years ago in Africa, is very often used to identify the presence of the human body. And you've mentioned pigments there. And something else I wanted to ask you about is um, red dyes and how red dyes can be made and what role they've played in art. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Well, generally speaking, when you have colourants, I mean, my, my book discusses colour in the broader sense, but also in the more specific sense of colourants, things we, 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 we use to make things have a specific colour. Generally, you're, there are two different types. There's the pigment, which is a kind of dry material that you might mix with a uh, with a binder or a liquid and then paint on something. And then there are dyes, which are um, soluble in water. And you would use those to, to dye fabrics, for instance. Um, red, one of the oldest red pigments is red ochre, which was just harvested, if you like, mined in the earth. But we've also had many, many fantastic red dyes through history. Um, and perhaps the one that before synthetic red dyes emerged in the 19th century, perhaps the one that was most celebrated or at least most gory in some ways, uh, was a dye known as cochineal, which uh, originated in Central and South America. And that dye was made from uh, the crushed, uh, boiled bodies of little scale insects, uh, these cochineal insects that live on cacti in Central America, and you would sweep these little uh, insects off, you would cook them, you would then squeeze them. They contained this juice called carminic acid, which was a bright, beautiful red, and then you would use those to make dyes. And these became perhaps the most splendid uh, red dyes available to the world until the 19th century, and they were sent all over the world. They coloured British army uniforms. Uh, they were used in paintings as well. And even today, we use cochineal dye, this insect dye, um, for food colourings, uh, for lipstick pigments and blusher pigments, although we don't realise always that it's actually made from an insect. And we, uh, we often call them a different thing, like, you know, um, uh, natural red four and things like that. We have we have different e numbers for them instead. But yes, I mean red dyes uh, have played a really really important role in human history. And thinking about some other connections, how is red linked to fertility? Well, one of the things that archaeologists have discovered when they look back in ancient societies is they find that there were a huge number of red pigments being used more than any other pigment, and 
Unfortunately, we don't know much more than that in these early societies, but lots of anthropologists have uh, taken this information um, and have uh, uh, argued that these red pigments were being painted onto bodies, and particularly female bodies, to symbolise fertility, because it was associated with menstrual blood and therefore with a with a girl if you like becoming a woman and being uh being potentially fertile we do know that even today there are a number of indigenous societies particularly in africa where red pigments are applied to the female body and sometimes to the male body as well to uh to project a kind of fertility um so this happens for instance in namibia where the himba women have been mining this particular ochre quarry for thousands of years and they put it on their body they put it on their hair every single day to make them seem more beautiful but also to make them uh, sort of you know uh, appear more fertile we also know that in other parts of africa uh, a number of women have red uh, materials put onto their bodies when they go through puberty or when they get married, or when they have their first child. So there are definitely connections between the colour red and fertility, although we don't know how far back they go and when they first were invented. And before we move on from red, why has it become the colour of political revolutions? Yeah, no, it's very interesting that what you see really, I mean, in the 18th century originally, but then into the 19th century, is you see in the West, in Europe, in particular, you see red becoming associated with radical politics, um, with left-wing politics, and ultimately with with um, communism in the 20th century. Um, there are all kinds of complex reasons for that. Uh, some of them are quite straightforward. Uh, radicals, martyrs, shed blood for their cause, and therefore it was associated with the colour of violence and martyrdom. There are also slightly more complicated affiliations and associations there, but it really becomes a very, very important uh, connection in the 20th century when you begin to see, for instance, the Bolsheviks in Russia embracing the red colour as, as, as part of their movement. And of course, in China, uh, Mao and the communists uh, using that colour as well. In China, it was quite interesting because red was was historically a very, very auspicious colour in China from thousands of years earlier. It was associated with long life and good luck. And so when, when Mao came to power in China, he linked up the, 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 the political left-wing associations with red to the auspicious ancient associations with red in China to make this kind of very intoxicating mix. But it's also important to say these, these meanings aren't always consistent. So for instance, in, in the West, in Europe, for instance, red is the party of mostly left-wing parties. So it's the Labour Party it is associated with red in this country and the, and the Conservatives associated with blue. Whereas if you cross the Atlantic, it's the other way around. The, the, the right of centre Republican Party is associated with red and the left of centre Democrat Party is associated with blue. And you mentioned in that answer that in China, red was an auspicious colour, but their most auspicious colour, the colour they're most highly venerated is yellow, isn't it? So the emperors and their wives are wearing the brightest yellow garments. Is it quite rare for societies to link colour to status so explicitly and really police the wearing of it and the production of it? The Chinese were real experts in uh, linking colour to status, and not only that, to, um, to, to having very explicit rules about what colours different 
groups of people could wear. But it did happen all over the place. You know, the Romans, for instance, had very strict rules about who could wear purple because purple was their most splendid colour uh, in in ancient Roman times. And they had very strict laws of, you know, that, that if you were uh, very high status, you could, so if you're an emperor, you could wear an entirely purple uh, fabric. If you were just below him, you could wear big purple stripes. If you were below him, you could wear thin purple stripes. If you were a little bit below him, you could have a little purple fringe. So actually, in many different societies, colours were were stipulated in this way because colours are meaningful. Colours carry connotations, not just over status, not just simply about whether it's expensive or not, but because they sort of mean things. They tell us something about the kind of person who is who is wearing them. And thinking about colours and their meanings, you say in your book that yellow is mostly connected to the sun. And you talk about the ancient Egyptians who are the most ardent of the sun worshippers. How did they engage with yellow? How did they bring yellow into their sun worship? Yeah, I mean, what I what I think it's important to say that every color has multiple connotations. Every color can. One of the exciting things about colors is that nothing is set in stone with color. It's such a amorphous thing. It's such a fluid thing. It's so hard to sort of pin down um, that to say it means just one thing at any given point in time would be wrong. But there are certain enduring connections and associations that run through history. And one of the strongest connections with yellow is, of course, the sun, because incorrectly, inaccurately, we think the sun is yellow. It isn't actually yellow, but we think it is. And uh, so often yellow products, yellow materials, yellow pigments through history become uh, invested with solar meaning, sun meaning. And of course, the Egyptians who lived in a, a very arid climate with a great deal of sun all year round on them uh, had had a great deal of respect for their sun deities. And they used yellow substances in order to celebrate them. Of course, the most famous yellow substance, the one that is the one that we think of historically and uh, as the most sun-like is gold. And uh, Egyptians, of course, like other societies, made great use of gold because gold was was like the sun in many ways. It wasn't simply that it had a kind of yellowiness. It was also that it was very lustrous, it reflected light, but it also never sort of stopped shining. Gold doesn't corrode, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't rust. And so in a way, like the sun, it just keeps going. It keeps shining forever, it might seem. And continuing to think about gold, how was gold used in Christian artworks? Well, Christian artists uh, for a long time used gold partly to simulate sacred light, the divine light that emanated from God and Christ, and partly to demonstrate the splendour of their religion, and also to demonstrate how much money had been spent on these wonderful artworks by wealthy individuals or churches. And Christian artists really developed some very exciting ways of using gold in their work, um, some of which had been used before. So for instance, one of the ways they used it was gilding. A gilding is when you hammer gold into very, very thin sheets, and then you stick them onto a painting um, and then you burnish them and sometimes you might decorate them and incise them so you get all these sparkling qualities. And the other way they did it was they would decorate the entire insides of buildings in gold mosaic. And that is where you would again hammer uh, 
gold into a little uh, sheet, and then you would sandwich it between two pieces of glass. And you would cut that glass into little squares, little tessera, and then you would stick those into the ceilings and walls of a chapel. And the great thing about that is in a dark room, if you have candles flickering away, that whole room comes to life and it has this whole unearthly divine radiance to it that would make people feel when they walked into that room that they were leaving the earth behind them and entering into a a different sacred space. And you mentioned in an earlier answer that colours have many different meanings. And one of the alternative meanings of yellow I wanted to ask you about is how the colour was used to mark out individuals. So you give the example of Jews who were made to wear yellow badges, yellow stars. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Yellow has particularly contradictory connotations because on the one hand, at certain times, in certain places, yellow was deeply revered. It was the colour of the sun, it was the colour of gold, it was the colour of, uh, you know, splendid joy and it was bright and it was uplifting. But in other times and in other places, yellow was uh, seen as a as a dirty colour, as an uh, unwanted colour. And so in Europe in particular, but also to some extent in the Middle East and Islamic societies, yellow was used to uh, taint, to mark out uh, individuals who were unwanted or or disapproved of because yellow was seen as dirty because yellow can seem like a slightly dirty form of white and partly because it was very bright and easily seen it would be used to mark out you know, prostitutes heretics um, criminals uh, Jews um, and it became quite an enduring mechanism for that of course in the early 1940s the Nazi party, deliberately and consciously revived the old idea of marking out Jews with a yellow uh, with a yellow badge. So through the Middle Ages, Jews often had to wear yellow hats, um, but sometimes there would be badges as well. And of course, the Nazis made Jews wear a yellow star um, that, that was the, the, the way of othering them. And we see it in art as well. I mean, you think of, for instance, of the great paintings by Giotto, Judas in many artists at work, was often shown wearing a yellow uh, outfit. And that would have immediately been understood by contemporaries in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance as, oh, he's the baddie because he's wearing yellow. Um, So it had all these meanings, some of which have faded from view, some of which are still going. And coming now from yellow to blue, something that really surprised me in your book is that blue, obviously a colour in the skies and in the seas, You'd think it would be everywhere in language, but actually in lots of languages and lots of cultures, there's this thing called blue blindness where people don't have words for blue or they don't see blue. Why is that? Why is blue the colour that passes under the radar? It is a fascinating phenomenon because what we have discovered, uh, I mean, at first people first started to work this out in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, they started to realise that with lots of cultures, when they travelled around the world and compiled dictionaries and tried to learn languages, they discovered that lots of societies around the world didn't have proper, stable words for blue. And they presumed at first that people simply couldn't see blue. They they weren't able to see that colour. It was only really in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, when linguists worked out that really it was simply that they didn't have words for blue. Um, so even in 
in almost every language we know of, blue is very late to be named. So most languages start with words for black and white, then they develop a word for red, then they develop a word for yellow or green, followed by or green followed by yellow. And it's only after those colours, only after black and white and red and yellow and green, do languages, most languages in fact, around the world develop a term for blue. So it does come very late. The most famous example is Homer, for instance, Homer's great, great poems in ancient Greece, they hardly ever use a stable, secure word for blue. And I think the reason is, I mean, no one really knows for certain, but my theory is the reason is, the reason that blue comes so late is that actually, despite, as you say, the sky being blue and the sea looking blue and the horizon looking blue, there are very few tangible blue things in our world, at least before we were able to create blue pigments and dyes. You don't see many blue fruits, you don't see many blue animals, you don't see many blue stones. There, there, there's not much around. And so people didn't really need the word blue in their, in their everyday language, because how often would they encounter a blue thing? Um, so I think that is one of the reasons why. Blue is, you know, it's, it's one of those stubborn shy colours. Though it's around us, it's always at great distance. The blue sky is a long way away. The blue horizon is a long way away. But, you know, things like, for instance, um, farmers and companies have tried for a long, long time to produce blue roses and blue tulips, and they simply can't do it. It's proved so difficult to manufacture blue in those kinds of ways. So I think blue, because of its, um, its reticence, and its and its distance from us. I think that's one of the reasons why it took so long to name it. Mm. And even though it took us a while to name it, the Romantics certainly were rather big champions of the colour blue. Why did blue become the quintessential Romantic colour? Well, I think partly because of the things I've described. I think the Romantics liked things they couldn't really get their hands on. They liked things that were mysterious. They liked things that were that were stayed at a distance. They liked things that you could yearn for, but you could never quite reach. And blue had all of those qualities in the bucket load, you know, the, the, because you, you could never touch the blueness of the sky. You could never touch the blueness of the sea. You could never reach the blueness of the horizon. And so blue became this perfect metaphor romantic metaphor for the things we want, the things we can see, but the things we can't actually have. And I think that remains one of the reasons why we love blue today. In fact, there are surveys, survey after survey shows, even today, that blue is by far the world's favourite colour. Almost every country in the world, the surveys reveal that blue, are people's, is, blue is people's favourite colour, and often by a long way. It's often 30 to 40% of a given population. Uh, choose blue as their number one colour. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But in the late 19th century, you see a real trend uh, where people start to identify purple as this particularly toxic colour and a colour that, 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 that can cause death. So you see a lot of novels in the 1890s, for instance, that, are, that turn on this idea of the poisonous purple. <laughs> really came into its own in the age of vertical exploration, so in the space race of the 60s when people take to the skies. When is it that Earth became the blue planet? Well, yes, exactly. I mean, this is a really interesting point in that uh, we always used to think of blue as the thing that was a, a long way from us. You know, we had Earth colours on the ground, 
so greens and browns and things like that. And we had these beautiful blues up in the sky above us. But the great irony is, of course, that when we when we finally actually got up into the sky and we penetrated the blue sky and we went up into space, we looked back down again and we realised that actually the Earth is far more blue than it is Earth-coloured because the Earth is surrounded by this not only by, obviously, has a huge amount of blue ocean in it, but it's also surrounded by this blue nimbus, this this hazy blue atmosphere that's created by Rayleigh scattering, this optical scattering of blue wavelengths through the atmosphere. And so it was really only in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, when we got high enough to look back and we noticed this that the, the Earth was blue. And it was probably in the late 1960s when the idea of the blue planet that we talk about today uh, first became a, a, a popular phrase. And next, I wanted to ask you about white. Why do we think of white as a pure colour? Yes, it's interesting. It's one of the most universal colour connotations out there. Uh, is that people all around the world associate white with purity, when white really is no more pure than any other colour. I think that in some ways there is a physical basis for it, I guess, in that white is produced um, by a uh, process that reflects most wavelengths of light, all wavelengths of light. So there is a sense in some ways that white white surfaces are quite pure because when the light reaches them, they bounce them all back, whereas black absorbs them all. Um, so there is, a, there is a sense, if you look at the physics, that there is a kind of purity associated with white, inherent to white. But really, it is a cultural phenomenon because we connected white to purity long before we understood how the optics of those surfaces worked. Uh, and so white becomes linked to light. It becomes linked to the cleanliness of fabrics and the cleanliness of rooms. Um, and it has all of these kinds of associations. And I think that nowadays we are so uh, convinced that white is pure um, that we we have white toiletries, we have white, uh, you know, crockery, we like white bathrooms. And we say, you know, when we when we see something white, we say it's empty or plain or neutral when actually it's it's full of white. And something that I found really interesting was the way that ancient Greek and Roman marble sculptures informed Europeans' ideas of, of white, the colour. Can you tell us a bit about how these sculptures made these meanings and forged these connections in European thought? Yeah, of course. I mean, in ancient Greece and Rome, they were making lots of statues, lots of buildings out of their marble that they had in their uh, in their local area. So in ancient Rome, it was mostly Carraran marble that came from, uh, from Tuscany. In ancient Greece, it was mostly, but not exclusively, Pentelic marble that came near Athens. There were other kinds of marbles in the islands and the islands of Greece as well. But primarily, most ancient Greek and Roman uh, societies and artists they coloured their marbles. They covered them in paint. They covered them in decorations. They were quite gaudy, sort of Las Vegasy looking objects, probably when they were first made. But of course, in the many centuries that they either sat in the ground or sat, uh, you know, uh, under the rain, those colours washed off and they were left with the pure stone beneath. Stone, which I must say was not completely white, particularly ancient Greek stone was quite is quite brown. And I think that when Europeans started rediscovering these monuments and these sculptures in the 16th century and through uh, until the 19th century, they presumed they had always been plain. 
They had always been unadorned. And this developed a taste in modern Europe for this particular kind of plainness, uh, of austerity and purity. Um, and so uh, we, we begin to see in the 19th century, in the 18th and 19th century, European artists, European sculptors and European tastemakers, really, beginning to say, well, you know, actually plain things and white things are better than coloured things. They're more tasteful. And I think that is an assumption that's still with us today. I think we still probably think that actually it's good taste to have something that's plain and neutral, you know, that a, that a simple Apple iPhone or a simple white interior is better than having too many garish colours jarring for attention. I think decadent purple should come back into <laughs> yes, vogue. <laughs> I agree. And <laughs> um, before we come on to purple, I had one more question about white, and it's how the concept of whiteness came into being in terms of race. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing to say about that is that we have always linked skin colour and skin tone to colours. We've always been aware of the appearance of skin tones, whether some people's skin tones are darker and others are lighter. But it was really only in the 18th century that we first started properly colour coding skin tones. And that was when scientists and botanists, Linnaeus being a, a perfect example of this, started to say, well, you know, there are different races of human beings and each of them is associated with a different colour. And so he, for instance, linked uh, Africans to the colour black, to Europeans to the colour white, to um, to uh, Asians to the colour yellow, and to Americans or North Americans, if you like, uh, to the colour red. These completely bizarre and in visually inaccurate uh, correlations, but ones that to some extent still exist today. It's definitely the case that for much of our history in Europe, Europeans didn't think of themselves as a white race. Uh, and indeed, if you look at your skin, you're not white. I mean, we, none of us are actually white, uh, literally. It was only really as we started to travel around the world um, and we started to trade with uh, non-Western, non-European people and we started to colonise them that we started to realise that uh, our skin colours were very different from others. And it was actually mostly, I would say, non-Europeans who started observing and saying, God, you've got very white skin. And then we started to in, uh, to appropriate that term for ourselves. So in around the 16th century, 17th century, we start to, Europeans start to think of themselves as a white people. And throughout the 17th and 18th centuries in many of the colonies, white becomes almost a legal term. It's a way of separating out the European settlers, particularly in the Americas, from the uh, Native Americans and from the black slaves who were there. So that's how it emerges. I think it's a kind of deeply consequential moment because when you link a specific group of people to a colour that they believe to be more noble and more pure and more morally upstanding than other colours, that gives them a sense of supremacy. And that supremacy obviously is still playing out today, that sense of white supremacy. And thinking now about purple, how did purple become the colour of luxury? Purple, like blue, was a very, very difficult colour to produce. Um, and it required a great deal of work, great deal of time and expertise, and often a great deal of money to make it. And one of the first great purple colourants was Tyrian purple, which was made 
started being made probably around 1500 BCE in the Near East. And this was a this was a colour that was extremely tough to make. You had to collect all these sea snails from from the from the Mediterranean. You had to then take out the mucus from one of their glands. You then had to boil that up for two weeks in some vats. The smell was disgusting, but you needed a lot of these sea snails. You needed somewhere in the region of nine or 10,000 simply to make a gram of this dye. So this purple that it produced became extremely expensive, so expensive that really no one could afford it. And in fact, there's a wonderful early 4th century uh, price list, Roman price list, that, that lists all the different commodities then available in the empire and the prices. And Tyrian purple silk, so this particular form of purple silk, was the joint most expensive product you could buy. It was 75 times more expensive than saffron. It was twice as expensive as gold. It was, I think, twice as expensive as buying a slave. There was only one other item on the whole price list that was as expensive as just a pound of purple silk, and that was uh, a lion. If you wanted to buy a lion, a male lion from Africa, that would be the same price as a pound of purple silk. And so purple becomes uh, this extremely expensive, extremely luxurious product. In fact, I, I did a calculation where I tried to work out how long it would take an ordinary worker to buy a pound of purple silk. And I worked out that if you if you asked a, a normal labourer based on his salary to uh, to buy a pound of purple silk, I worked out that it would take him 24 years of non-stop work to, to save the money to buy that. So that gives you an indication of how it was completely out of the reach of most people. And purple in the uh, Roman uh, period and in the Byzantine Empire became associated with the regal uh, rulers of those societies. And um, uh, we still ha- have these connotations in our language today when we say someone was born into the purple or when we say someone had purple prose. There's still a sense that purple is a colour of splendour and extravagance. And with the rise of chemists, purple went from being something that was completely out of the reach of most people to something that the upper classes and the middle classes could afford and could wear. And there's something that is wonderfully called mauve mania that spreads across the UK and purple becomes this global sensation. Can you tell us more about that transition? Well, there there, there have been a couple of moments in the history of humanity that have been major quantum leaks in colour creation. And one of those quantum leaks took place here in the UK in the 1850s and 60s. And that was a time when these new chemists started creating from scratch, not create finding things in the earth or dying, using things made from plants, but actually creating things by manufacturing chemical creations in labs. They started to create a whole new range of new synthetic colours. It's not actually the first one, but what's seen as the first great, hugely successful synthetic dye was a dye called mauve. This was a purple created by an 18-year-old boy called William Henry Perkin, who was um, discovered it really by accident in his spare bedroom in Shadwell. And he created this stunning purple colour that had a similar shade to some of the best Tyrian purple and went into manufacturing it, I think, in 1857, and it became a huge phenomenon. And throughout the late 1850s and into the early 1860s, 
everyone who was anyone wanted to wear purple. So, you know, Queen Victoria wore purple and um, aristocrats at balls wore purple and men wore purple ties to the office and children started wearing purple school uniforms. Purple went everywhere and it did become much more affordable, much more affordable than the ancient purples. And so lots of people could wear it. We even ended up having purple stamps, postage stamps. And so, you know, it's funny, when when we think back of the past, particularly if we think back to the Victorian era, we always think of the past as being less colourful than the present. We always think it's going to be slightly black and white or grey because that's we see it through black and white photographs or sepia photographs. But actually, if you went back to London in the 1850s and 60s, you would be just inundated with bright purple and indeed lots of other bright colours as well that had all been generated by synthetic chemistry. But on the flip side, synthetic chemistry did have health concerns, didn't it? It did prompt fears that um, these chemicals could lead to health issues, to disease. How did this idea of toxic purple come into play? Yes, well, of course, um, with this new era of synthetic products, a lot of them were made from um, chemicals that were dangerous. So mercury and arsenic for instance, were very important components, aniline, which was this coal tar product. So a lot of these factories that produced these colours were emitting and discharging a huge amount of really toxic materials. And people did die as a result of them. People got skin conditions, people got got cancers, people uh, using water in wells near the dye factories were were dying mysteriously. And so there was a sense, I mean, people are always scared of the new anyway, aren't they? I mean, people are always anxious about new technology. But in the late 19th century, you see a real trend uh, where people start to identify purple as this particularly toxic colour and a colour that that, that that can cause death. So you see a lot of novels in the 1890s, for instance, that, are, that turn on this idea of the poisonous purple uh, dye or the poisonous purple item of clothing uh, or the poisonous purple death ray or the poisonous purple cloud. Um, so it's a very fascinating... Uh, transformation in the meaning of colour, because purple for so long had been associated with regal, imperial, ancient splendour. And by the end of the 19th century, it was associated with modern science and and toxicity. And the final colour I wanted to talk to you about is green. How long has green been connected to vegetation? Well, we don't know exactly scientifically. We know that millions of years ago, in fact, billions of years ago, about 1.5 billion years ago, that um, the first prototype, if you like, of plants emerges in the sea when a a photosynthesizing creature was consumed by another creature, and that created the basis of chlorophyll being inside plant structures. Plants then, then, then develop. One of the fascinating things about chlorophyll, which is, of course, the the photosynthesizing green pigment, if you like, inside of, inside of every leaf. One of the fascinating things about it, and one of the most mysterious things about it, is that it's green. Because if plants and if chlorophyll uh, is about harvesting light energy, if the goal of these plants is to basically get as much light in and then turn it into sugar that they can live off, you would think that leaves should be black because black absorbs all the wavelengths of light. And so you'd think that that, that the most efficient plants would be black plants. And yet 
they're not black. We associate most plants with being green, uh, which is, of course, rejecting large parts of the spectrum. So it is quite a mystery that plants are green, but they have been for as long as we know, um, for, for many, many millions of years. And of course, it's such a powerful connection between green and vegetation that we, we can't really think of anything, uh, vegetation being any other colour, without it being weird. And what examples from different cultures and societies do we have of green being linked to fertility and life-giving ideas such as youth, spring, things like that? Yeah, well, green as a virtue, as a product of its connections to fertility and, uh, to, uh, and, and vegetation and spring and new life becomes a, a really quite positive uh, colour in many different cultures. Um, we see it in, in ancient Egypt. We see it in China, we see it in South America. Perhaps the most famous embraces of, of green as a colour were the people of uh, the Islamic faith. And I think there's no coincidence that these are a group of people who emerge in a very arid part of the world where green vegetation is quite scarce and where um, uh, green vegetation is therefore really treasured. So we know, for instance, that Muhammad. Uh, his favourite colour was green. He liked wearing green. He talked about leaves all the time. We know that the Quran talks a lot about um, uh, about the beauty of leaves and plants being uh, being rained on, for instance, and the power of the rains. We know that the Quran talks about paradise itself as being green uh, in some ways. You know, the, the 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 Islamic paradise is quite similar to the Christian and Jewish Eden, but one of the big differences is they explicitly link it to green. They say that people are wearing green clothes there, they are reclining on green cushions. And in fact, the shortest verse in, in the Quran, in the whole Quran, is just one word. And that word means green. It's a particular kind of dark green of the trees and the leaves that could be found in paradise. And um, so, so green has particularly positive connotations in the Islamic world because it's associated with faith, with being blessed by God because the rain is coming down and feeding everything. And uh, it's also associated with the afterlife and renewal. And we've talked about politics earlier in the podcast, but to come back to that again, why is it that environmentalists rebrand themselves as the Greens and you have this growth of the Green parties? I've tried one of the things I tried very hard to do in the book was to try to work out when do we first start using the word green to denote the environmental movement. And uh, I think the Oxford English Dictionary says 1971, 1970, 1971, when when Greenpeace was founded. I mean, there's a great story about that because they were, this was Greenpeace at the time was only, was called the Don't Make a Wave Committee. And they were meeting in Canada, I think in 19, February 1970 or 71, to sail a ship to Alaska, where a nuclear test was about to be done by the, the Americans. And at the end of the meeting, the chairs signed off with a peace. He went, peace, as they, as they did back in those days. And then another guy in the meeting, who I interviewed for the book, in fact, said, hey, let's make that a green piece, uh, because he was talking about the green of vegetation. And of course, they, they, they loved the name so much that they named that very first ship the Greenpeace, and that's why we call it Greenpeace. But actually, I think that really, we begin to see people in the late 1960s associating green with the environmental movement, or at least with ecologically concerned people. So I think it's in the late 1960s that that 
begins to happen. And in the 1970s, we see the great emergence of environmental parties, most of which call themselves green parties. And what I think is so fascinating about that development is that I think it shows how quickly and how comprehensively a meanings the meanings of colour can change. Because before 1968, if you said the word green, no one would link it to environmental policies. No one would think it's associated with global warming or um, or animal welfare or uh, deforestation or any of these issues. But now, of course, when someone says go green or be green, or you even see the, the green recycling truck driving down your street, we know exactly what it means. We know what it means socially, politically, ethically. And that, as I think, is a sign of how quickly it the, the, the meanings of colour can change. They changed dramatically for purple in the 1850s and 1860s. They've changed dramatically for green since the early 1970s. That was James Fox, author of The World According to Colour, A Cultural History, which is out now published by Penguin. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Thank you.